Father in heaven, we thank you that we can sing these praises to you. Thank you for those who practice and lead us in these truths, Lord, but they would tell us that they are messengers of that truth. They do it in song. Pastors, teachers, preachers do it in, in proclamation. We do it to each other. We remind ourselves of truth. We share the gospel with others. And it all cycles abound to you, our God, who gave us his word, explains his plan of salvation through his son alone. What a glorious message it is, Lord. Put us on this planet for a short time. None of us will live terribly long. But you want us here worshiping you, magnifying you, and proclaiming you. And so, Lord, we pray that we can do that tonight, that it would encourage us to do that in our lives. And we will remember this earth will dissolve like snow someday. Not to hold on to things, not to white-knuckle things, but to live for you each and every day. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't. We are but dust at times, and we act like dust. <laughs> we get blown around by the winds of our flesh. And so, Lord, we pray that we would grow and be more and more like you, like your son, each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever taken the wrong trail, the wrong road? I remember when the GPS systems first came out, they weren't quite on top of their game, if you remember when they first came out. People were driving into lakes and going off, you know, because the road isn't there, you know. Or, or you're on a trip and you miss your turn off, and then there's not one for a long ways, and you just lost a lot of time. If you're like me, I'm, you know, Gina and I are so different. We're so good for each other. She's like, oh, it's fine. I'm like, we just lost the world, you know. <laughs> I, you can tell I'm a little wound up some days, um, but it costs you, doesn't it? And then there's those times we make stupid, unwise, unbiblical decisions in our lives that really cost us. That cost time with family, marriages, finances. And we wander around aimlessly. I think probably most of us have been there, maybe for a short time, maybe for a long time. But there's God. He's always watching over us. The Bible is very clear that he watches over his children. His eyes are always on those who fear him. He's always attentive to him. He uses very human terms as he's watching over us, listening to us. His arm there. We, we stay under his wing. Those terms are always there. The reminder that we are never, never away from him, though we may wander. Right? The hymn writer said we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. It's only because he's transformed our hearts that we grasp the magnitude of faith and grace that brings us back to him, doesn't it? When you have strayed, when you have struggled, it is the grace and mercy of God seen through Jesus Christ installed in your heart through the Spirit of God that causes you to repent, doesn't it? If it isn't, it's just you sorry over something and, you know, I don't want to do that again. But your repentance comes when you acknowledge this God still loves you and he's, his, son's, his death is still uh, sufficient for you and yet your sins are still forgiven and you bring you to your knees and you repent and you walk with God again. Isn't that a beautiful thing that God does that? Even though you went wandering in the desert for a while. Anybody been there? I've seen a few of you out there. 
Like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, well, not good. <laughs> well, I hope, you know, right? You've been there, haven't you? You know, Moses is out there, a bunch of big group of people. And there we are. But we have a God who does not forsake us, does he? And if we're truly regenerate, blood-bought people, we are not eternally lost. <laughs> we are lost for a short time <laughs> in a sense that we're not following our Savior like we should be, but his eyes are on us. And as I opened this text last week and this week and, and working on this, again, it is this massive list of places this time. Remember, it's numbers, right? So it's always about numbering in some way. And I thought, oh, Lord, this is going to be great. I'm going to get to go through this one a little faster. Hang on. There's more in here than you think. First thought. Our watching God who knows our paths and is acquainted with all of our ways. You can see the effects of Psalms 139 on me as I studied this. Our watching God who knows our paths and is acquainted with all of our ways. Well, as we look at the bigger part of this chapter here, um, verse 33, it's, it's mostly the account of the journeys of, of Israel from the time they left Egypt to the time they get and stand on the plain there in Moab as they get ready to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. In the first four verses, let me read the first four verses and we'll talk about that for a minute and then we'll allude to a bunch of other verses here and see what we can learn. Verse 1, these are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are the journeys according to their starting places. They journeyed from Ramses to the, in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. And on the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. And while the Egyptians were burying all of their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgment on their gods. We'll stop right there for a moment. Well, you'll notice that in that statement, there's an introduction here, including dates, right? Lord's very clear, 15th day, you know, first day, you know, he's all, all the way through this, he, he's very clear about those dates. And, and, and so he talks about the circumstances of them, their leaving. I was thinking about this today as I was rehearsing and going back over this, I thought, Lord, they're burying their dead because you better get them buried pretty quickly. There's no way to do what they would do with the pharaohs in that amount of time for that amount of deaths in that nation of Egypt. That whole first generation of children were dead. And they got to get them in the ground. And while they're doing that, the triumphal Israelites under the head of their God are walking out with their stuff. And so he reminds them of this. He wants them to be reminded of that. Now notice the, the statement here tells us that they're under the leadership of Moses and Aaron, right? And, and that's been the leadership even all the way into chapter 20 or so in Numbers. And then there's a transition, and it's Moses and Eliezer. And then as we move on, eventually we'll see Joshua and Phinehas as the leaders of Israel. But look in verse 2. Here the Lord commands Moses. Look at it. He commands him to record these things. He wants this record. Record the starting places. Record the places of the journey and record all the way till you get to the border of the promised land. I want it written down. 
Now, the word journey there is an interesting word. It's used uh, many times in the Hebrew language. But here it's interesting. It translates from masa to nasa. Now, there's a difference in those words. Masa is translated often to journey or carries the idea of stages. Your Bible might translate it stages. But probably the best translation English-wise were marches. They marched from one campment to the next. Remember, because they got in line, they got in their orders, the tribes were all in their orders with the ark in the center and all that stuff. Right? Remember we went through that? So there's a march going on from place to place here. But Nasa here, the Hebrew word there means to set out. So as, as it transitions and starts going, as you see, verse uh, 5, it starts there. That's where the Hebrew word changes. 5, and then all the way down it goes to Nasa. And there it means to set out, to pull up, and move. Now, I don't know about you, my dad, when we were camping, we camped a lot because that's what we did. And he said, time to pull up stakes. Well, what does that mean? Tear down the tent, right? If anybody's ever been camping, and here you look, that means pull the stakes up. The tent's coming down. We're leaving. We're going home. That's the idea here. And they did that time and time and time again for 40 years. Pull up the stakes. We're leaving. And that's recorded here. They journeyed from here to there to here to there to here to there all the way through this. Now, in this passage, there are 40 stages or 40 marches um, between places, uh, maybe between campsites, if that helps you. Um, from Egypt in verse 3 all the way to verse 49 to the, the plain of Moab there. Now, uh, there's 11 campsites uh, that are mentioned from Egypt to the wilderness of Sinai where they get to the Mount Sinai. There's 11 different stops there. You can, you'll, you'll see this, verses 3 through 15 there. And then there's 20 campsites. They're mentioned from Sinai to the wilderness of Zen. That's 16 through 36. There's some interesting things there. We'll look at that. And then there's nine campsites mentioned in here from the wilderness of Zen to the plains of Moab in verses 39 through 49. Now, doubtlessly, God commanded Moses to record this list of places as a reminder. He doesn't want them to forget their journey and the reason for it. God never wastes a good trip <laughs> and not to use uh, some kind of experience to teach you something. And that's what he's going to do here. Now, many of these places are difficult to identify. If you look down through this list, one, you'll have a hard time pronouncing them. Two, you may not find many of them on your Bible maps. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one, as we study this, uh, there's a lot of different views of where they went. If you're going to look at maps in the back of your Bible, you may have someone sit next to you, and their map and their Bible is going to be different than the map you have in your Bible. So there's a lot of opinions on where they traveled and how they got there. However, one of the commentators that I read regularly on this suggested that this list of places was more of a kind of like an obituary of Moses. This is where Moses was during the most significant part of his ministry. And it's a list of where he had been with this people as he led them. And maybe this was read when Moses died. He took us here. He took us here. We were thirsty here. We grumbled and complained here. Seas were split here. Quail was fed and flown in here. Maybe it was an obituary for him. There's quite possible, and it was a significant time for Moses' leadership. Now, the 40 stages don't reference 40 years, right? We understand that. But the first 11 stages, the Bible tells us in Exodus 19, they went through those first 11 campsites in two years. So they're, they're, not, they're not related, you know, campground, you know, moving year by year. That would kind of been nice, but that's not how it worked. 
And that's because it, it shouldn't be based on a time allotment. I, I think there are many suggestive routes that, that many different researchers have done, but the journey from Egypt to Sinai, um, when we think about it, was, well, I, I measure it out, and I, and I looked at it, and I read a bunch on this, was somewhere about 220 miles to 240 miles. So you can do, you can do the math. If you're moving that larger group 10, 20 miles at the best, they should have been there fairly quickly. And then as they moved from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, that's where they first rejected God's word and got turned around there, that's only about somewhere between 150 to 170 miles. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 2 says, it's 11 day journey, days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So the whole trip from Egypt to the Canaan border could have been accomplished in a little over a month if they wouldn't have run into problems, right? But that's not what happened. Um, I have some maps. Um, do we have that first map? I'm going to just give you a little bit of eyesight. This one is, I found this map at a book. I couldn't find a better one than this, so hopefully you can see this. I can see it really good because I'm up here. Um, <laughs> so somewhere in this land of Goshen, they would have been very spread out because, you know, there are several million people. So they're very spread out in the land of Goshen, which is, which the, remember, the Nile's draining down through here. And so um, it's actually draining, going this way, draining north, and it feds out here. And this is all very irrigated ground, still to this day, extremely um, extremely fertile. We were there this last year. They started out here. In, now, this is where it gets sketchy. Nobody really knows. Back in this day, these wadis, um, they, they believe many of these were joined. Now, if you go there, and we, we drove over this, there is the uh, Suez Canal that connects all of these and then floods into, goes into the Mediterranean. So when you go there, you go over the Suez Canal. In fact, when you're driving through this desert, it's very flat out there, just brush and rocks. You see ships going through the dirt because <laughs> you can't see the canal. And you're like, there's a cargo ship out in the desert, you know. Uh, so that's what's happening there. Now, so this is one of the possibilities. They think it could have crossed here where the Red Sea and God drowned it. The, drowned it uh, the Egyptian armies were trailing him. Traditionally, they believe they came down somewhere in this area and came across here. And this is where God drowned the, the armies. Now, there are several sites for Mount Sinai. This is one. This, partic this particular guy thinks it was here. I, I don't know. I've, I've been over there, and I don't know where it is. And I don't think anybody does because, like we find when you go over there, they're building shrines to, and all kinds of stuff. But this is one possibility where Sinai was there. I tend to think it's probably down this way from the days, how long it took them from here to there. Um, but nobody knows. And they worked their way down along uh, the Gulf of Suez, which would have been the Red Sea. And there, this is the traditional site. This is where I climbed up on Mount Sinai there. Now, there's another site that there are a lot of good men that think it's over here. And that they would have come across here and they would have cut, maybe swept down through here because this is pretty rough country down here. They would have come across here, got away from all the rocks and the mountains over here, and came up, and Mount Sinai is in this area. And then they would have went to Kadesh Barnea here, and they get turned around. I'll, on my next slide, not yet, I will show you um, what happens there. So, so they left Egypt. They could have been here in about 30 days, in about a month. But when you worship golden bull calves, and you go through plagues, and you got to bury people, and all the rebellion that they went through, it took them a little bit longer than now. Now, 
As you think about this first lesson, there are, I think there's several lessons that are in here when you start to think about God moving these people. First, there's a great contrast between when you think about a month travel that actually the month travel could have got them, when you think about this, they could have done all of this in a month and got into the promised land. They could have been here. They're going to end up coming in the back door over here, but they could have come through here in, in about a month. Instead, they are how many years? 40 years. So I think one of the lessons here is there, there's a great contrast between getting to where God wants you in 30 days versus 40 years. Anybody like the 40-year plan? <laughs> it's not great. The 30-day plan was pretty good, and yet that's where disobedience takes you. Now, second, one of the other things and lessons, I think, from this chapter, and, and I think it's important, and one that comforts our hearts a little bit, is God is watching. And he's watching so closely that even in disobedience, where they were, he wanted, God wanted Moses to write down every place they were at. He cares about where they were at. He's watching over them. Even in their disobedience, he was watching over them. Good, bad, disobedient, obedient. God wants that recorded. And so God commands Moses to record these events so that the nations, and I think even ourselves, would understand that a great part of Israel's wandering was completely unnecessary. So you look at this and you go, wow, what a waste of time. (laughs) And then you go, oh, wait a minute. I've been in that desert. There was things in my life that God clearly showed me through his word and the leading of his spirit to do, and I did not do it, and it cost me. You know that, don't you? And so when I look at this, it reminds me that God wants me to understand that he has a great plan for our life, and we will deviate in disobedience and we'll waste time, time that is precious because this world is going to go away like a vapor, and so I think that's a lesson that is wanting, God's wanting us to learn here. Now, because the result of sin of disobedience, they just moved and moved and moved, and really, they got nowhere. They really came to nowhere. They, they spent all that time, and I'll show you just in a minute here, I, I want to feel a few more things here. You're going to see that they spent all this time moving and moving and moving. Um, the section 16 through 35 is probably that section. Um, they spent all that time and really went nowhere. Boy, we don't want to be that as a church, as individuals. We want to find what God is doing and run with him. I think the effects of sin haven't changed. I, I think these spiritual lessons um, are true for us. We can find ourselves spinning our wills spiritually. Uh, a marriage that is not vibrant. Uh, a job that is not looked upon as a mission field. A, a life that is just a drop uh, in, a, in a few years compared to eternity. I, I think we understand this. And I think that's what sin does. It causes you to get stuck. I, I hate when I fall out of my walk with the Lord. I let something uh, pull me away from that, that intimacy with God. And, 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 and you find yourself in this constant destructive cycle. You, you can get there. Your mind goes where it shouldn't be. And your frustrations grow. You know this, right? 
And so you end up like the Israelites in a sinful wandering, and you end up getting nowhere. And I think the Old Testament paints so many of these narratives for us to help those in the future, us, to look at it. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, those were for you. Their examples were for you, so you don't repeat them. And yet, man often does. When you think about these inspired portraits, I mean, that's what we're looking at when we get into these narratives. They're portrait, biblical portraits and paintings for us. They're for those that live now and they reflect deeply our, our pursuit of Christ or they reflect our wanderings. And there's two of them and they finally get there and boy, I, I, from here on out, the nation does walk with God all the way through Deuteronomy mostly and Joshua mostly and it's beautiful and it's successful and great things happen and and we can see that in our lives when we do that. But then there are the times where rebellion comes and these pictures paint what wandering does. You end up in a dry and barren land getting nothing accomplished. And I think that's often what's happening in the church in America today. They're so caught up in godless pagan things that have made their way into the church and fighting and biting and devouring and the church stalls out. So Christians deal with this. And we understand this. Because selfish desires will blind us and we won't understand the direction of God. And we'll just wander around. Now, back to the text, verses 5 through 15. There, as you just kind of peruse that, there uh, are, are many views and debates on the journey from the nation here. And, and even the archaeological findings are not helpful, right? They, they, they just can't find all of these lists in here. Um, but this section, ha- most of them in this section do. When you look at verses 5 through 15, we know of most of these. I, the way, uh, all my reading this week, I realized that there in verses 13 and 14, that Dolphica and Elash, those are two we can't find. So, so in this first section, 5 through 15, they have pretty much believed, they have a pretty good idea, most of the traditional ones believe they found these sites. So this section of campsites mentioned have distinguishing markers in them. If you look at verses uh, 5 through 15, just kind of glance down through the verse 6, just notice um, there's some identifying markers. It's on the edge of the wilderness. Notice that. Um, Verse 8, they pass through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. There's markers here. Verse 9, they came to a place where there's 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. There's markers there. Verse 10, Red Sea. Verse 11, Red Sea, wilderness of sin. Verse 12, wilderness of sin. There we come upon the two unknown sites, campsites there. Uh, But we do know where Remedem is. We think we know that area. Um, But then there's a place with no water, right? And then the wilderness of uh, Sinai. Now, there you can kind of see this, but this next section, there's very little markers. Now, let's put that next map up, Shelby, if you can for me. Um, Once they set out from Sinai, if in fact this is where they were, so it was either here, here, or here, but traditionally this is where they think it was, they made their way all the way up here to Kadesh Barnea, right? Had a golden calf problem here, lots of people died, (laughs) rebellion, but they get going again. They repent of that. And they go all the way up to Kadesh Barnea. And there the ten spies are sent in. You can see maps on this where they believe. Some of the names are on there. They made their up way up around this and came back and looped through here. And then came back and said, yeah, it's just like God said it is. But we're going to die. <laughs> we're like grasshoppers. They're going to crush us. 
right? And that's where there began this rebellion. And you'll notice now in verses 16 through 35, notice how tight the writing is. They journeyed, they journeyed, they journeyed, and there's no descriptions in here. In this section, most of these campsites, these stoppings are unknown. Nobody knows where these are. They can't quite find them. And so that's why you see lots of different maps with different ideas of where they might have went. And because of this, uh, many commentators suggest that this section is probably where this 40-year wandering went around. They may have dipped a little farther down into here or a little farther out this way. You see the King's Road here that they would have got on. Remember, as they're coming towards Moab, they get on the King's Road and run into Ammon and, and Moab and Midianites and uh, uh, the king of uh, Canaanites, Arad. They run into all that after they've wandered here for 40 years. So uh, what we mostly believe is 16 through 35 is this section right in here. Now, they came all the way from here. And then they spent 40 years doing this. Do you see my point? You see how we can waste our good best years of your life chasing things that there doesn't seem to be a purpose to them. Now, in this list, 36 through 49, it begins with El Zion Geber uh, to the plains of Moab. Um, There, again, we find historical references when we start to get into these verses, verses 36 through 49. You'll notice even Aaron's death is in here in verse 38 and 39. Um, Now, it's fascinating because when you go back to Numbers chapter 20, verse 22 through 29, that's where Aaron's death is about. There's more detail given here, but in very sobering account. You remember this, they take off the ephod and, you know, you're like, oh, this guy's dying and they're putting it on somebody else. You remember that when we were, when we were studying that. Um, but here, it, though, it's marked. It's marked in this. They knew it was time for Aaron to die and that be transferred over to Eliezer. Also in verse 40, notice in verse 40 we have the account of the Canaanite king Arad. Now you remember him. After, they, after they'd wandered here for 40 years and now they're starting to make their way across to Mo- the plain of Moab, which is here, they ran into the king Arad and there he came up against them. Um, I think Numbers 21, if I remember right. And there he took some of them captive, remember that? And God said, go get him. I'm going to deliver him. And he utterly wiped them out. That was their first major war that they had. And then, they, then they ran into Sion and Og and eventually into the war with Moab and the Midianites um, as they made their way up here. But you'll notice that this account, again, starts to have uh, some, some counts within it. We, we actually know where they're out a little more here. And so um, we know that they pleaded with God and God took care of their enemies there. Now in verse 38, we're told that this was the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year since the nation had come out of Egypt. So now they're 40 years into this, minus time getting to Sinai and the problems there. So they're well underway. And so this section leaves out really some, some important places that we've already seen. Uh, and I wondered about that. And I have one author that I really enjoy. He's, he's fairly deep and, and, and long to read at times, but his name's we, uh, Winham. And, and he said this. He said that's about the section. Why there are some places left out? Because uh, inevitably when, when all the record isn't there, there's somebody saying, oh, see, it's not inspired by God. But that's not why he was writing this. He was writing this to remember that God was with them through this rebellion. Even in the rebellion, he was with them. 
but he was teaching them greater lessons. Here's what Winham wrote about this. He said that if God's purpose not to record every campsite, but to show the nation and the reader that if God had helped Israel over this great extended time, even in their disobedience, he surely would be able to help them now as they came to the border of the promised land. I thought that was significant. And it reminds you, yes, he's with you. Even in those times of rebellion, those times of sin where we wander around, he's there. And that if he's with you then, <laughs> oh, do we sense his presence when we are walking with him. So we refer to the passages like this as more didactic and instructional than geographical, right? And, and again, people, there's arguments all the time. People try to prove the Bible is inspired by God, and they'll come to things like this. Oh, see, they're missing. that. We know in other places it said they stopped there. This doesn't record it. They don't know what they're talking about. That's not what this is about. This is God instructing them, showing them. I'm, I'm marking places where I was with you, so you will know I'll be with you when we go into the land. Now, because of this, we do not find the recording of the complaining and murmuring. Isn't that interesting? Did you notice that? We find no water, and, and we find palm trees and, and things like that, but no murmuring and no complainings in this. Now, those were pretty significant, right? People died. Snakes, that was a fun one, right? Um, plagues, all of that happens, but none of that is recorded in it. it isn't, I find that fascinating that God doesn't do that. Because I think what he's doing is he's reminding them not about their sinful ways, but that I'm with you. And so he doesn't mention all that, but he mentions places of provision. Here's where I was with you when the water was bitter and we threw a tree in it and it became sweet and you drank. We were there at the waters of Maribel. We were there, I was there with you during these times. This is God teaching, he provides. I give water, I give trees for shade, I bring you into wildernesses and bring you out. So this seems to be more an important lesson as God commands Moses, write this down and emphasize my grace. I was with you in the most difficult times of your life. Your shoes did not wear out. I fed you every day. I think that's amazing. And that's why the other things aren't recorded here, I believe. But what a great lesson for us, right? As we move forward in our pursuit of the glories of Christ and really our promised land, as we are moving forward to the promised land, the celestial city, um, as Pilgrim's Progress puts it, as we're moving forward to that, that is what God does with us. You say, well, what ways? Well, God does not bring up our sins. You do. Maybe to each other. But God does not. The Apostle Paul was a tremendous threat to the early church, right? If he did not personally kill people, he oversaw that they did. He destroyed homes, put men in prison. He was awful, awful before he was regenerate, wasn't he? And he tells you that. He was, he was the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners, he calls himself. How does he deal with that? How does he get over that? How, how does he move on in Christianity and be the great Apostle Paul who's get inspired to write all these letters and to pastor these churches and to do all this? How does he do that? Well, he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, 13 and 14, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He's reminded him, keep your eyes on Christ, hang on to him, 
hang on to perfection that is in Christ. And he says, I haven't got there yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's how he does it. I don't think there's a person in this room that doesn't have some regrets in your life. If you do, come talk to me. If you don't, I want to know. How did you do that? You reach sinfulness somehow. (laughs) Sinlessness, sorry. We all have regrets, don't we? And some of those hurt. But we're minded here. Paul says, look, those things are behind me. And when I look at this, I said, Lord, why don't you you bring up their complaining? Earlier you said ten times you've done this against us. And in the record here, he doesn't bring it up. Because that's our God. He's a God who forgives his children. He does not put it under your nose and rub your nose into it. He forgives you. And I think there's such great lessons. F.B. Myers, writing on this passage, said this. When we get to heaven and study the way book, he called it, we shall find all the deeds of love in self-denial carefully recorded, though we have forgotten many of them. And all the sins blotted out, though we remember them. I thought that was great. Isn't that great? When we get to heaven, all the things we did from the Lord with our hearts and did them for them, they're recorded in the book of the way. And you won't even remember them all. You were just serving the Lord. You just love Jesus and you're, 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 you're caring for the saints and you're sharing the gospel with the lost. And, and um, while you're doing that, he's recording those things. But you and I, have a hard time forgetting where we denied him. Where we lived in denial of him. And you will find none of that recorded in heaven. Nor ever brought up. And so I look at this and I go, God, this is so precious. There's nothing about it. Aaron, his sin at Marable isn't there. Yes, we're told this is where he dies, but in chapter 20, it's brought out what he did. Here, nothing. I find great comfort in that. And I love the fact that God chooses never to bring your sins up. Once they're forgiven, they're blotted out. God does not choose to remember them, but he chooses to reward our deeds done by our hearts through a a right heart before him, through self-denial. Now, we often struggle with the remembrance of sin, don't we? That's a... That's a tool of of Satan, isn't it? You'll be trying to serve the Lord. You'll be trying to maybe witness to somebody or prepare your Sunday school lesson or do something and and thoughts will come into your mind and and, and you you battle those things, don't you? That's, That's the battle we have in this fallen world. But God is there and he's given us victory. And we can have victory over the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it's such a good reminder when we think through this. We often find ourselves kind of bound up in those sins. Marriages can't go forward because the hurts are so deep. They can't forgive. And, and, and in the end, there's destruction there. But, but yet there's Christ. I, why are you going to let this destroy you? I've forgiven this. This is what he does for us. And so we either get bound up in the past or we get bound up in the lust of the future, right? Men and women, Jeff, I think, 
sometimes, and not always the case, but women will really struggle with past. It'll, those are hard things. Men are like, oh, forget the past. I just, if I could get that new vet, you know, if I could just have that new whatever. See, the lust of the future. And you find Satan in both those categories of past and future. But the victory is found in a living Christ in the moment. Right now, he is our living Christ. I think the point is illustrated in the reference to Aaron here really well in verse 38 and 39. It's just not brought up. His sins are not there. And I think God wants his people to see that. Yes, this is where Aaron died. This is where Eliezer was installed. This is where we moved forward on that. Aaron's now with me. And it reminds us that he led them through a course that he was bringing them, even in their disobedience. And they, they, put, their, they put their God-given faith into him, just like we do. There's this God-given faith, and we trust him. And we try to get to the finish of that line, trusting on his faith, not on our own. And this reminds us that Aaron did finish that race, and Moses will finish his race in Mount Nebo. And God does not remember those things. If you're a Christian, and you have not let go of the past you probably never be able to really live for Christ in the present. That's something you have to deal with. The future won't be anticipated with humble confidence. You won't be longing for the appearing of Christ because, because your sin is still holding you or, or at least you're giving in to it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. I, I, this is just a great passage, a great reminder. I was thinking as I was finishing the sermon today and I thought, man, there's a great text in 1 Peter 4 that addresses this. The first century church, so many people just come out of just pure paganism, right? Sexual acts involved with religious religions and idols and all kinds of things. So Peter reminds them in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purposes because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sinning so Christ suffered in the flesh and now he's going to give you strength for you to suffer in the flesh verse 2 so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God so you have to still live in this flesh but you don't have to live in the lust of men right the lust of mankind the lust of the things that separate you and and hurt you and remind you of the evil that is can come up in your heart he says that time is over that time has come verse three for the time has already passed is sufficient for you to carry out those desires of the pagans having pursued the course of uh, sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries you know, then he goes on to talk about, don't be surprised if people want you to come back. He goes, the time is gone. That's done. It's time to go forward now. I think that's a reminder here as you see them, not remind, God not reminding them of their sins. Look at the last thought here, number two. Who inhabits the land of our hearts? This is a question. Who inhabits the land of our hearts as you make your way back to Numbers 33. Let me read this last section here and then we'll kind of make some sense of it here. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, I'm in verse 50, in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, opposite of Jericho, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take, and you shall take possession of the land and live in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to the families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give less inheritance. Whoever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. And you shall inherit it according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. As much as the scriptures are filled with the grace and mercy of God, I think seen in the first section here, there are plenty of passages of, now look at this, of warnings. Warnings. There certainly was punishment there for rejecting God at Kadesh Barnea. That's come to an end now. That punishment, the, the, the older generation has died off. Even the punishment of some of the immoral worship they got in with the prophets and prophecies of Baal and Balaam and all of them. That's been done. Now about God's about ready to bring them into the promised land, but this has been a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, and they need warnings, right? And we need warnings, don't we? The Bible, by the grace of God, gives us warnings. We warn our children, right, when we raise them. You know, be careful. Don't run out in the street. Don't do this. We warn them because we what? Because we love them. And so when you look at this, and, it, and wow, it's strong, isn't it? But it is a loving God warning them of what sin will do to them, and particularly do to them in their relationship with God. And so the nation has already promised God several times in several instances, one just after the whole golden calf issue, and one before that after they came off the mountain and so forth, that whatever you say, God, whatever you command, we're going to do that. And yet they murmured and complained along the way, and God continued to show them mercy. Now God was about to give this nation the gift of the land of Canaan. It was a gift from him to them. And the people, they were to go into this land, and they were to subdue it. You can see it in the text here. They're to subdue it, possess it, dwell in it, and live in it in peace. That's what God gave it to them, too. It was to be divided up according to the size of the tribes. You saw that according to how the lot fell, right? Doubtlessly, they rolled lots for, for the bigger tribes, got bigger pieces and so forth. But here's the key. The nation would only occupy that land as long as God occupied their hearts. That's what we see. And the minute they begin to not let God occupy their hearts, they begin to have great trouble pricks in their eyes, thorns in their sides. And then it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse till you kind of get to the major prophets and destruction and death and terrible things are happening. But here, the God of Israel, our God is warning them. And, and clearly throughout history of Israel, God's desire is to be their Lord and Master. I want to be your Lord. I want, I want to be your Master. I want to rule your heart. And the question here in this last section is, will they bend the knee to the lordship of God? 
Will they let him be their ruler? Now, one aspect of lordship is that he strengthens us today in the New Testament, New Covenant age. He strengthens us by his spirit, right? And he strengthens us to battle the world and battle their idols. The world's always pushing their idols in front of us. Just like the worshipers of ba- uh, Baal and Balaam behind all of that we saw. They're just always trying to antagonize and entice uh, Israel into that worship. The world's doing that, right? You can't turn on the TV. You can't listen to the radio. You can't drive down the highway without billboards around here. Entice, come on, come on. He's warning them here. If you give in to this, they, they will take you. And in fact, he says it so clearly. You'll either destroy them, drive them out, turn from their lust and love me, or the opposite's going to happen. And I think we see this in our own lives. We either love the Lord, right? Love Christ, love his word, and love his people. Or we love the world and we love the lust of it, right? One of the two. And we know this is a battle. Jesus himself said, no servant can serve two masters. You either hate one, strong word, hate, or love the other. Or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Great contrast, Jesus says. You can't serve God and wealth. James says, listen, you adulterous person in chapter 4, 4 and 5. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now listen to this phrase. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, listen to this, makes himself what? Does anybody know what it is? An enemy of God. A Canaanite to God. James isn't messing around. This is early church. This is Jews, mostly in James, right? It's one of the first books written. They knew exactly what he's saying. You're saying we're going to be like Canaanites to God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, Speaking of Christians, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust. Now listen to this phrase, which wage war against your soul. There's a war for your soul, brothers and sisters. It's happening every day. As soon as you wake up, the war's on. And it's on until you go to bed. As you fight and strive to let Jesus be king of your heart. And so here we have God has made this people of Israel, right? He's, they're his people. He, he birthed them. He, he brought them about. And he desires to be the center of their existence, everything to them. He wants to be the center. Making any form of idolatry an abomination is really what he's saying. Any form of it. I want to be sinner. And anything else will be an abomination to me is what he's telling them. And these verses remind us that there's no room for paganism. Right? That's what he's saying. Break them all. Look look at verse 52. Look at what he uses, three Ds here. Drive them out, destroy, destroy, and demolish. Four words, three Ds. Sermon, there's a sermon there probably somewhere, right? Drive them out, destroy them, demolish them. Don't keep them around and put them in the back closet. That's what we do. Do we flee sin? It's just so clear, right? Any ties with this worldly paganism he's telling them will either, you are either going to cut that worldly paganism off or I'm going to cut you off. It is radical transformation, isn't it? 
And yet we think, well, you know, we're Christians and God saved us and his grace was great and, you know, I can keep a little foot in the world maybe like that. Does this God different than the New Testament God? I mean, you've got to know. I mean, it's got to, this stuff just comes off the pages, doesn't it? Drive them out, destroy them, demolish them. Nothing left. Sweep out the house. A little leaven, what? Leaven's a whole lot. I mean, it's just all through, right? Page after page, the scriptures tell us that he wants to be Lord of our life. He does not want to share you <laughs> with the world. He saved you from it. What a reminder how this is. This, yes, this was physical, right? Israel, go in there, smash your idols, get rid of all that stuff, grind it. I don't want it there. But it is very true, just as today, this stuff needs to be recognized, understood what it is, and our God needs to be the only thing that is sitting on our hearts. And brothers and sisters, it's, I can sit here and tell you that, and yet it is a battle with me and it's a battle with you. But we, it's not a battle that cannot be won. We have the spirit of the living God within us. We have his word. We have a savior that defeated sin for our behalf. And we can do these things. Look at verses 55 and 56. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it will come about hmm, that those whom you let remain. I got this stuff just marked up in my Bible. Because I write, up, I write to me in my Bible. <laughs> That's what I'm, what I'm marking. I'm, I'm talking to me. You let this stuff in there, Scott, this is going to be bad. It's going to be like somebody taking a pen and jabbing it in your eye. That feels good. That's, that's what sin does. And this is the beautiful warning of a God who loves us, right? The psalmist picked us up. Look at Psalms 85. Real quick, I've got to hurry here. Psalms 85. Look at the psalmist. I, mean, I just picked this one. 84 is so fun too, but look at 85. I don't want to get distracted. Verse 1, O Lord, you showed favor to your land. Now, now they can see a lot of things have gone past this time, but I just want you to pick up what he's doing here. You restored the captive of Jacob. You forgave the iniquities of your people. You covered all their sins. You withdrew all your fury. You've turned away the burning anger, right? This is, this is amazing of a loving God to the nation of Israel after all they did to him. Restore us, O God, to, of our salvation and cause your indignation towards us to cease. We will, will you be angry with us forever? He goes back to the feelings of what it was like being under the heavy hand of God. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourselves revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Now look at this statement. Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. Now listen to this. Let them not turn back to folly. Whoa, that's a good reminder. Let us not turn back to the things that God rejects. The idolatry that man constantly shoves in front of us. And you would say, Scott, how do I do this? Well, brother and sister, you are free in Christ. We're no longer enslaved to sin any longer. Romans 6 is so clear in that. Romans 6 verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. 
Isn't that cute? Not immoral, but in, in, immortal body. That sin won't be able to get us there. Don't let sin reign now is what Paul's saying. In this mortal body, this body that's going to die someday. Don't let it reign so that you obey its lust. Remember that it, the, Peter said that, that sin is lusting, warring is the same word. You can translate it both ways. War or lust, lust against or wars against your soul. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and the members of instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not master over you. You see, when you're counseling or trying to counsel yourself or trying to help somebody else, you have to come to this stuff because you've got to say, yes, you can do this. No, I can't, Pastor. You don't know how hard it is. She's just this way or he's just this way. No, you can't do it. Well, then God's a liar. Because he says you can master sin through Christ. Somebody's lying in the room. You or him. See, this is how we get to the bottom of things. We realize, well, it can't be God. It's me. And then we remind ourselves that we're complete in Christ, right? He's completed in Christ. Colossians 2, uh, 9 through 15. Just turn there and I'll quit with this one, I promise. Um, what an amazing reminder of our completeness in Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, capable of doing everything God does because he is God. He shares that, that essence with him. Though he is in full submission to the Father, he is fully God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Verse 10, so we're complete. In Christ, verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. That word means lacking nothing. What's your problem? I know what mine are. What are yours? What's your struggle? This verse right here says we are complete, lacking nothing in him because he is the head over all rule and authority. That's demonic, angels, people, world system, everything. He's head over all that. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That stuff was cut away. That disease and death that was going to take you to hell was cut away in removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. You were died when he died, and you were raised when he was raised in the newness of the, of the Spirit of God, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So when he was raised, you were raised. Now look at this. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcised in your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven some of your sins. All of them. Every one of them. Past, present, future. All your transgressions are forgiven. Look at this. Having canceled out certificate of debt, consisting of degrees against us. Man, I, I don't want to see it, but I wonder how long it is. <laughs> well, starts at birth. <laughs> what a long list of sins canceled out against us. And notice they were hostile to us. Sin hates you. Its goal is to kill you, destroy you. It's the tool of the Satan. It's hostile towards you. He goes on, look at this. And he has taken it out of the way. Having nailed it to the cross. What did he do with your sin? He nailed it to his son. When he's disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over 
them our sin, these authorities, these wicked men and, and angels and devil and all of that. He nailed that all to the cross. He triumphed over it through Jesus Christ. So there is one that, that, that God has sent. It is his son. And listen, there's no one in this room, there's no believer on this earth that's ever lived or will live that Jesus can't mature, can't grow, can't deliver, and can't set free. There's no one. You may think you're, you're beyond that, or you may know somebody you think they're beyond that. that. That's not true. He can deliver. And for you and I, we know this. He broke the stranglehold. And, and you look at this. You just look at these verses. I just picked out three things. He, he broke it in three things. First, our sin nature itself. That, that birthed us into so much trouble. You came out of your mother's womb in a lot of trouble. You were born dead. That's what the Bible says, right? I mean, so he takes on our sin nature, right? Jesus cuts off the cause of the rebellion. He makes you what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, a new creature, right? And a new creature in the core of who we are, not just some outside change, but he changes it from the inside. So he deals with our, our sin nature. Second, Jesus bore our sin himself, so he carried it. He took it upon him. And notice the verse says he canceled it out. And he forgave us of all of it. So even the guilt goes with the sin. Ooh. Is that true? Is my guilt gone? Did the work of Christ take care of not only sin but guilt? Ooh. This is why Paul says, my conscience is clear. Wait a minute, Paul. Are you sure? My conscience is clear because my hope is in Christ, not in me. And so he takes away the guilt, the horror that often comes with guilt. He strips it away. And then third, notice that Jesus strips the devil of his power. And he did that by bearing the judgment of sin himself. He stole the power of Satan because he took sin and nailed it on himself. Now, Satan does not have the tool to condemn you. That's overwhelming. See, Satan needs sinners, doesn't he? And God frees you of your sin. And you're no longer a sinner. He doesn't have control of you anymore. He doesn't have the means to destroy you. See, this is why we find victory in Christ. Jesus was judged in our place for that. God doesn't have to judge us because, because he judged Jesus. And he doesn't have to cast us out of the promised land. He opens the door wide in. Welcome, come in, my faithful servant. You who were blood bought by my son, come in. He delivers us through his son. The devil does not have his death hold on us. The psalmist says, who is like the Lord? <laughs> who is like the Lord? Yeah, I hope we learn this. Father, thank you for Numbers chapter 33. Thank you for that you do not remember our sins. You warn us, Lord. You're good God. You don't want your children to walk into the traps and the problems that come with it. You warn us of those things. And yet, Lord, you choose not to bring up our sins ever again. They're taken out of the way, nailed to your son. Oh, Lord, how, how precious you are. Who is like the Lord? We say that with the psalmist. Amen.
In Jesus' name, amen.